as we come before you with the word in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you remember a boxer from Chicago called Jim Tillis? Come on, Jim Tillis. Bob does. Yeah. Nobody else? You don't remember Jim Tillis? Nobody knows Jim Tillis. Oh, Dennis knows Jim Tillis. All right. We got two people that know who Jim Tillis is, right? Do you think I might be making a point with that? You know, <laughs> you've never heard of Jim Tillis? Come on, look at that. Well, you guys obviously know the guy on the left, right? That is Muhammad Ali. Oh, now you know that guy. <laughs> but you don't know Jim Tillis, the boxer from Chicago? No, of course you don't know him because the guy lost more fights than he won. So you may say, well, then why are you mentioning him? Jim Tillis arrived in Chicago in the early 1980s from Tulsa, Oklahoma. And he was a champion boxer in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And he got off the Greyhound bus with a couple of cardboard suitcases. And he began walking around Chicago. He had enough money to get a cheap room for the night. But as he was walking, he came across what used to be the tallest building in the world, also known as the Sears Tower. See, this is we're going to team preach this, okay? So the Sears Tower, and when he saw the Sears Tower, it was such an awesome sight that he put his uh, suitcases down, and he stepped forward, and he said, I am going to conquer this city as he was looking up at the Sears Tower. And then he looked down, and in the five seconds it took him to say that, both his suitcases had gotten stolen. I know, it's kind of funny when you think about it. I'm going to conquer this town. What? You know, gone. He saw a couple of thieves running off, and all he had was the clothes on his back. And he did say that he had such confidence going into Chicago that statement was a statement of, I'm going to be the champion of this town, and then to have that very next thing, have his clothes stolen out for under him. He said, you know, it was that day that I lost the battle of my mind. And essentially, I wouldn't say his boxing career went nowhere. Uh, he did earn a living from it. But <coughs> he, did, uh, he did say that he lost more ba battles than he won. Sometimes when we find ourselves in the battle, losing in the battle for our minds, we got to flip the script. Uh, most of you know that uh, before I came here, I was a youth pastor. I was a youth pastor for, for more than a decade, many, many years. I still gravitate toward youth today. Uh, I, I was thankful and blessed enough to speak in the youth group last Wednesday and uh, and, and who knows, you know, uh, maybe there'll be another opportunity for that, but when I was a youth pastor, I went and visited one of our kids. The mom had called me and said, hey, you know, kid don't want to go to church anymore. Don't want to go to youth group. Can you come over and talk to him? Sure. So I went over, I talked to him, and this was a teenage boy who was struggling. His dad had left when he was young. That's already a big hit on a boy. He was teased at school. Come on, nobody likes to be teased at school. He was struggling with money, right? Uh, the family didn't have a lot, and he didn't have a lot. Girls didn't seem to notice him. You, know, you, you want to at least be noticed, right? Uh, you know, sports teams wouldn't take him. He was just kind of a gangly little fella. And I remember he looked at me, and he said, Tom, how can I believe in Jesus 
when I have been dealt such a bad hand in life. And you know, it was so real. I mean, I really, truly felt for the kid. I don't even know if it was true. I don't know if he had been dealt a worse hand than all of us have pluses and minuses, right? But in that moment and in his heart, he didn't hate God. He wasn't mad at God. He wasn't some atheist who's going to tell everybody why God's dumb and he's right and they're all wrong. In his heart, he was just broken. How can I believe in God when I have been dealt such a bad hand in life? And I just sat there with him. And he he said, man, how can I believe in God when all these horrible things happen on the earth? And I looked at him and I said, I got a problem with that too. As we just kind of sat there in silence, I looked up and I said, you know what? I got to tell you something, son. And this is the truth. Life, life is complicated. Follow Jesus anyway. I said, if you can burn that into your heart, you will overcome everything this world throws at you, including dad leaving, grades falling, girls not noticing, and teams not taken. You can overcome all those. But Jesus is your one chance to overcome those when you got a thousand voices screaming at you saying, just quit now. And he kind of looked at me and he said, well, I don't like that answer, but somewhere deep down, I know that's the right answer. I know that's the right answer. may not feel good, but I know it is right. Sometimes life is complicated, and we follow Jesus anyway. If you read through the Bible, you'll find many stories of people who were in situations in life that just seemed to close in on them. Some of the situations you read about are like Job. Many of you have heard about the story of Job. Job lost his wife, no, not his wife, probably wishes he would have. He lost his, uh, sorry, it's it's true if you read the story. But anyway, um, uh, he lost his kids, right? He lost his job, his business. He lost his home. I mean, he lost all of these things. None of us here would have judged Job if Job would have just freaked out in, a, in addictions and in anger and in rage and just, you know, I mean, we'd have been like, man, we, we, we understand that. Or maybe Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, right? Abraham. Abraham is told, get up from this land and house you know and go to a land that you do not know and have never been to. And what happens when he gets there? A famine, right? You ever feel like, God, you led me here, and you led me right into a famine. Thank you, God. You know, <laughs> I mean, this, you know, we read about these stories. And, 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 you know, while a lot of us would give them a pass, we're really not surprised when somebody chooses the wrong way to deal with life stressors. In fact, if we were honest, sometimes we're sympathetic. Yeah, they went out and got soused. Yeah, they went out and got high. Yeah, they went out and do this, but man, you should have heard about the day they had. We have many forms of pleasurable escapes that we run to. Binging on Netflix, that's the new one, hence the pandemic. Eating 5,000 calories, 
working out three times a day, stumbling sexually, or our personal favorite, throwing our own pity party. If, we ex- if, we ex- if the experience we had is bad enough, we tend to justify not only our bad behavior, but any bad behavior as a way to cope with the pain. But deep down we know it's just a band-aid. It's not dealing with the problem. In fact, it's delaying dealing with the problem. And sometimes they lead to not dealing with the issues at all, which can be disastrous. But every now and then, every now and then, you come across people or a group of people, rather than depleting their faith, trials and tough times ignite their faith. Take, for example, the story of the three Jewish prisoners, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. They were three Jewish prisoners who defied a Persian king, their captor, and when that Persian king demanded their worship. In exile, in an enemy land, these three young Jewish men were asked to bow down to an image, an idol, of this king and worship it. They refused. The king actually extends grace and commands them again. They refuse again. So he, in his anger, he orders them thrown into the fiery furnace. In that day and age, there wasn't life in prison. There weren't crosses. There weren't crucifixions. They threw you in an oven, and in five seconds, you were gone. And I mean gone, reduced to ash. So he orders them thrown into the fiery furnace. You know, sometimes when I read that story, I kind of think to myself, God, what were you thinking? Right? Well, this doesn't make, this doesn't make any sense. Shouldn't these three young men be rewarded for their faith rather than having to go through this ordeal with the fire? I mean, God, how could you let it come to this? But then you read their response, and their collective response leaves us dumbfounded. They said, and I'm quoting Daniel chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. They said, King, if we are thrown into the fiery furnace, then the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. But even if he does not, we want you to know we won't serve you. We won't, well, they'll serve him like on earth but they won't serve your gods we won't worship the image of you and we won't worship anything that you have created despite every justifiable reason to save their skin they chose convictions over comfort and that is the key to winning the battle for your mind to choose convictions over comfort so how do we come? How do we become this rare breed of God follower whose faith ignites rather than retreats under pressure? That's why we're going back to the first five verses of Psalm 23. And actually, we're going to do this a little bit different. I'm going to kind of take apart each verse and comment on them and show how they can become uh, verses that help us to ignite our faith when tough time comes rather than cause us to tuck tail and run to our favorite escape, our favorite addiction, or the miry land of confusion.
All right, let's begin with the very first one, Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. Most of us, we know that. We've memorized that. We all know that's the beginning of how it begins. And here's the problem. We can say that so much, it begins to lose its power. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We can say it and hear it over and over and over that you almost got to go back, wait a minute. The Lord is my shepherd. What is God saying there? What is Jesus saying there? Jesus is saying, allow me to lead you. Allow me to lead you. Jesus is saying, I don't just want to be your God, I want to be involved with your life. Yes, your life is going to have some ups and downs. I want to help you become resilient through the downs, and I want to amplify the ups. But no matter what, when you allow me to lead you, where I'm taking you is going to be good. It's going to be filled with purpose. It's going to be filled with power. And you won't end in a negative. You see, Everybody is being led by something or someone. Everybody. We were created as people to be led. It's in our programming. But some people, me included at times, we want to rewrite Psalm 23 to sound, you know, to sound something more like, I am my own shepherd. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I don't like being told what to do. You're not going to tell me what to do. Nobody's telling me what to do, right? We have those moments. I am sick of people telling me what to do. But even in that, we're still being led. Maybe not by someone, but by something. Whatever is back there that's saying, I'm sick of being led. Here's one observation. People who are like that, who try to be their own shepherds, if they were brutally honest, they live in nothing but constant want. That's why the next part of that sentence is so key. When the Lord is our shepherd, we shall not want. But when we're our shepherd, we seem to live in nothing but constant want. Right? I rewrote the first five verses of Psalm 23. And this is kind of my reworked version. This is me on most Mondays. So, <laughs> so let me say it. I am my own shepherd. I am a mess. My needs are constant, and they are never met. I wouldn't know still waters if they bit me in the back, and I haven't rested in a pasture, and I'm still trying to find my path. I seek comfort wherever, and I can't stand my foes. With lost pride and greed does my cup overflow. I don't know what's going to follow me all the days of my life, but make no attempt to help me because I'm always right. Oh, that's a recipe for a stressed out, burned out life, isn't it? (laughs) But that is what happens when we go shepherdless. Jesus, when he is our shepherd, He punches through our stressed out circumstances and replenishes us deep within our being and brings us to the place where we can say, I shall not want. 
I remember when we were, we're talking about youth camps, right? Rob, Rob was just talking about how he was affected by youth camps, and we're trying to do a youth winter camp, right? The announcement got, we got delayed a month, right? That got announced, right? Youth camp was delayed a month. It's the end of February now. Well, long ago, almost 15 or 20 years ago, uh, I was once again trying to get kids to go to summer camp. And there was this one kid, he joined our church, joined our youth group, didn't know anything about God. And as he got into the music, got into the groups, got into the small groups, we started reading the Bible together, this kid just ignited, you know? And, and I remember saying to myself, summer camp was made for a kid like this, you know? And, and so we're doing sign-ups and everything, and, and I gave him a thing and he handed it right back to me. Oh, I can't go. You can't go. You're 15 years old. What else in the world you got to do, you know? No, I can't go. So I'm like scratching my head, you know, and, and, and I said, hey, man, I'd really, I'd really, I can't go. So I finally, I talked to one of my supervisors. I said, man, this kid wanted to go, wanted to go, wanted to go. We give him a registration. He hands it right back, and he says very angrily, I can't go. My supervisor said, well, let's get on our knees and pray. I don't know if he heard a word from the Lord or not. But he looked at me and he said, he doesn't want you to know that his family is poor. And he can't pay for it. So I, I said, well, I'm going to call him up and tell him. No, no. If you give him a full scholarship his family may be upset with him for portraying them as poor. And so what am I going to do? What am I going to do? He said, this is what you're going to do. You're going to lie. I said, pastors can't lie. <laughs> There's a lot of things pastors can do, but we can't lie. He goes, well, no, no, no. It's not going to be a full lie. He says, <laughs> he says, you're going to institute something where the kid who volunteered the most in that month, they get a partial scholarship for camp. I said, we don't have that. He goes, that's where the lie part is. He goes, he goes you have it now. Because <laughs> I was telling him how this kid was the most amazing kid and volunteering. And that you're going to award him with a partial or full scholarship to go to camp. So we did that. And sure enough, his parents came up to us at church and said, man, I'm, we're so excited he gets to go to camp. Uh, we were just, we just don't have the money and we weren't going to be able to send him. And he really wanted to go. And he came home and just said, well, those things aren't for kids like me. And then I remembered, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. If Jesus wants it for you, you're going to get it. You're going to get it. You know, and that kid came up to me. He felt so bad. Pastor Tom, I can't believe, you, you, you don't make a lot of money. I can't believe you scholarship me for camp. I, like, I said, I didn't pay for you. I know people who have money. They paid for you. <laughs> I said, one day, <laughs> you got <laughs> you to gotta figure that out too. But he, you know, it was just that moment you know, where it just really came alive to me, you know. When Jesus is our shepherd, if he wants it for you, you're going to get it. It may take a while to get to you, but you're going to get it. Amen?
Second part of this is he makes me lie down in green pastures. You ever notice that? He makes me lie down in green pastures. So when Jesus is your shepherd, a lot of us think, oh, if I let Jesus rule my life, it's going to be hard. It's going to be stressful. Jesus is going to make me do all these things I don't want to do. Jesus is going to ask me to do all these things. No, no. The hardest thing about Jesus being your leader is that he makes you stop. Is that he makes you calm. Is that he says, lie down, chill out, take a break, spend some time with me. Let me give you some clarity. I love how the Bible says that. He makes you stop. Sometimes Jesus will stop you to get your attention. Now, I'm not, you know, some people, you know, like when they're in the hospital on a ventilator, they're like, God had to get my attention. I don't know if that's always true. I don't think God needs a terminal illness to get your attention. But sometimes Jesus will stop you. Sometimes Jesus will say, lie down. Instead of freaking out, instead of wigging out, instead of running to every escape and every addiction and everything, just stop for a moment. Don't do anything. But rest in my presence. Just like those sheep you see resting in the green pastures. When I was a youth pastor, we took a trip to Mexico it was a mission trip to Mexico. We ended up doing nine of those over the course of my time there. And so I have a special place in my heart for the people of Mexico, the culture of Mexico. And we were there in one of the cultural cities. And, and uh, I'm the youth pastor. I'm in charge of the kids. <laughs> and I lost one. <laughs> Not very funny, actually, but I did. <laughs> we, we, we brought like 30 kids, and all of a sudden... I did a count, and there were only 29. <laughs> now, losing somebody at the mall, that's one thing. Lo- losing somebody in Mexico, that's another. So when I realized that I had lost a kid, I was on the verge of the biggest freakout in my life, right? And just as I was about to freak out and let all my fears out, one of the youth said, hey, Maybe we should get in a circle right now and pray. Oh, out of the mouths of babes. Amen. You know, out of the mouths of babes. And so I'm like, (sighs) we grab, you know, and we start praying. And I kid you not, it's almost spooky. We were just about to finish and say amen when the kid walks up. He got locked in in the bathroom at the missionary house. And the missionary's wife found him and brought him to us. He was never in any danger. And I took over the counting after that point. (laughs) My counter was another youth leader. She didn't do such a good job. But I mean, you know, just that I was on the verge of a freak out to just pray and stay calm. What if for the next five minutes I freaked out? All of those kids there would have been a much different atmosphere, even though the kid was still going to walk up. Jesus made me lie down in green pastures. He'd had it covered from the beginning, and I just needed to trust him. Amen? 
The next verse says this. He leads me beside the still waters, restores my soul, and leads me along the right paths. A lot of people get this wrong. The still waters, we think that the still waters part is just because those are peaceful. But believe it or not, if you really think about it, still waters are not all that good for drinking, right? You want a nice, good, rapid river. That's going to be the fresh water. So it's not about, that's not the restore my soul part. Why do you think there's the emphasis on the still waters? Well, it's kind of very easy. You see, sheep lack self-awareness to intuitively know when danger is right around the corner, right? By the way, humans lack self-awareness to intuitively know when danger is right around the corner. They don't see it, and neither do we. The sheep sees the river, wants to quench its thirst. Now, if that river is rapid and raging, the sheep's not considering what the waters might do to him. You see, that nice wool coat that they wear that we all enjoy, all of a sudden becomes an 85-pound weight when it gets saturated with water. So what happens when sheep gets you know, stuck in fast-moving water and the river takes them and begins to drag them out? Now all of a sudden, they're trying to stay up above because they got an 85-pound wool coat trying to pull them down. But what does the shepherd have? The shepherd has a staff. And what do we call that staff? We call it a crook, right? Because at the end, it has a hook. And that's why it has a hook, so that that shepherd could go, and I'm sure this wasn't fun for the sheep, but it'd get it right around his neck, and it would yank that sheep by the neck right out of the river. How many of you, you could be honest and say, there are times in my life where Jesus took that crook and yanked me right out of the river? Because you know where that river is going to take you, right out to sea. And you know what happens when you get out there? You drown. So Jesus is taking that crook so that we are not dragged down by the weight of our foolish choices. That's the still waters. Jesus leads us to the still waters because where Jesus leads us, you won't have to worry. Where Jesus is leading us, he sees what's right around the corner. And it's not going to be danger. Now some of you may say, there are times I felt led by God into dangerous situations to be a, a light. True. But you were never in any danger. The power of God versus anything this world has to offer will never, one time, I'll tell you another Mexico story. One time we went to a new spot. We wanted to go, the kids wanted to go a little more in the hood. All right? So he takes us into one of the ghettos of the city we're in. And we're going to do a big presentation there, and we're going to invite all the kids to come. I found out later they were all the kids of the gangsters who live there. We had like two or 300 kids, and we're doing this amazing ministry, and we're you know, doing the balloon things, and, we're, you know, and, and, and you know, there all the kids were getting, getting on our knees. We're praying together, you know, and, 
and it's this awesome thing. The only problem was the road in there was narrow, so the truck had to take two trips, right? It was about three miles in, three miles out. So they pack up, and they pack, I pack all the kids up, pack everything up, and all of a sudden, it's just me and two youth leaders, two female youth leaders, and we're with the rest of the stuff. You know, it's all this missionary stuff, his, his sound equipment, valuable stuff. And all of a sudden, I, I, I kind of realized, wait a minute, Three miles, three miles. Got my watch. It's getting dark. You know what happens when it starts to get dark? It's getting dark and dark, and all of a sudden, it's me, you know, whitey tidy, in the middle of this barrio, and I'm, and I'm kind of going, wait a minute, you know, and you can kind of see. The element is changing, right? The kids are now in the apartments. You know, they are no longer on the street. And what's coming out on the street, and I'm kind of, I'm looking around, I'm like, uh-oh, I got, <laughs> I got, I got $15,000 equipment and two women with me. I'm thinking, oh boy, this is, n- you know, I'm thinking to myself, how did you get yourself into this? I didn't get myself into that. I was just following where Jesus was leading. And in that moment, I don't know where the missionary shows up. I don't know where he was. We started the day he left, and then he showed up at the end. I realized he was out there inviting everybody. So now he'd finally show up. He was back. I'm like, oh, man, I'm glad you're here because you and I might be fighting everybody here. Jokingly, you know. He looks and he says, don't act like that. Right now, you're the sheriff of this town. You walk tall, you walk strong. Because greater is he who is within you than he that is swirling around us right now. And you know when he did that, we changed our attitude. No fear, confidence. Of course, I'm praying in tongues the whole time, you know. And, and, and you know, we saw that pickup truck come, or that van come back to get us, you know. And, and I never loaded the equipment so fast, but I loaded it confidently because you know what? Where Jesus leads, even if sometimes he leads you to a place that seems kind of dangerous, He's still with you. He hasn't left you. And he's going to give you the power to get out. Amen? Next one. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow. We know this one a lot too. This whole psalm. It's like we know it. I will fear no evil. For you are with me. By the way, this verse is an allusion to David's fight with Goliath. Right? David met Goliath in the Valley of Elam, right? And that became known, you know, that became known as the Valley of the Shadow of Death because it was thought that anybody who fought Goliath would certainly die. That's why for 40 days and 40 nights, nobody else went out there to try to fight Goliath because they knew it was like, it was basically committing suicide. And they thought, maybe we can just wait this out and Goliath will go away. Well, Goliath was not going away. And David knew something that everybody else didn't. If I go out and face him on my own, I'm dead. If I go out and face him with God, he's going down. And that's where David gets this verse. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And that's what he told King Saul. That's what he told Joab. That's what he told Abner. That's what he told all the commander of the guard. 
He's looking up saying, I don't know where your relationship with God is, but mine is great right now, so send me out there, and I'm going to go get rid of this giant so that we no longer have to live in fear or confusion. And then finally, it says he prepares a table. I left the table up. He prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Now, I don't know about you, but if God is going to prepare a table for me, I want it to be in his presence, not in the presence of my enemies, right? I mean, that would be my first response to God. God, I love the table. I love the food. By the way, the food is angel food, right? I mean, this is, you know, you can't get more divine than this. You know, God, this is wonderful. But why does he prepare that table in the presence of our enemies? Just like I told that kid earlier. Life is complicated. Earth is complicated. Follow Jesus anyway. There's enemies lurking all around. And God is saying, don't give them any power over you. One time I had a teenage girl in our youth group and she was a, she said she wanted to, she was having thoughts of suicide. It was the very first time cyberbullying kind of about 15 years ago. And uh, yeah, she was being cyberbullied to the point where she didn't want to go to her school, she wanted to move and, and she didn't want to live. And when we prayed for her, that was the word that the Lord gave me for her. Don't give those other dumb girls so much power over you. Don't give them that kind of power over you. Don't give them the kind of power that only God should have over you. But we do. We do give that kind of power. And what the Lord is saying is, don't give your enemies any power over you. I've prepared a table. That table is for me and for you. Yeah, they're going to be lurking around. But God calls us, and this is what he's saying, in the midst of the battle, you can be calm because I'm with you. I know what you're going to say, but God doesn't feel like he's with me in the battle. That's true. Let me, in on, let, let me let you in on a little secret. Your feelings can lie to you. Your feelings can lie to you. But the word of God will never lie to you. In the valley of the shadow of death, God is with you. Some people in this church I've known for years, and a few of them I've, I've buried. And what's interesting is I'm usually there right before I bury them. And they'll tell me moments before, or sometimes days before they go from this world to the next, Tom, I've never felt God more by my side than I do right now in this moment. Because he won't leave you. Fact, the table. When David says he prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies, why does he use the picture of a table? I'll tell you why. David is thinking of the tabernacle, right? the old Jewish tabernacle. And in the old Jewish tabernacle, 
God had them set it up a certain way because God was making a point. When you walked into the Holy of Holies, the place where the priests minister, the New Testament says you and I are authorized to do this now. When they walked into the Holy of Holies, the place where the priests minister, on your left was what? Anybody know what was on the left? It was the, we light them? Candles, yeah. It was the candles to show that God's light never goes out, right? In front of them was this little box, and on top of it was this little basin, and they put things in, and they burned it, and it smelled good. We call that, we call that what? Incense, right? On the left was a table. On the right, thank you. You're left, right? <laughs> left, right. On the right was a table. And on that table was bread. Choice bread. Bread filled with honey. On my table is bread. Choice bread. Filled with chocolate, maple, sprinkles. <laughs> but what, what did the bread stand for? If the candles stood for God's light never going out, the incense stood for our prayers never ceasing. What did the bread stand for? I'll tell you what it stood for. In Exodus 25, 30, God says to Moses, set on the table the bread of presence before me at all times. You know what the bread of presence is? It's God's way of saying, this symbolizes my presence and it'll never go away. It will always be with you. So it all connects. He sets the table with the bread of presence with the God who is always going to be there symbolized in the bread of the presence. We follow the shepherd. We live at the table. And when we live at the table, we get still waters, green pastures, right paths, no want, no burnout, no fear, even when death's shadow is coming for you. If you have a discussion sheet, real quick, don't worry. I'm just going to give them to you. Number one, ask yourself honestly, what or who is leading me? What or who is leading me? Everybody's being led by something. Even if it's their own emotional unhealth, everybody's being led by something. I can tell you this right now. When you're being led by Jesus, you're going to be led to green pastures, still waters, peaceful, peaceful paths. Number two, instead of praying, God help me through the storm. And you can. I'm not saying that's a wrong prayer. But think about this. Pray, God, thank you that you are with me in the storm. Now, how are we going to get through this? Sometimes we pray, we think, I'm going through this, and God, you're somewhere else. No, 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 no. Whatever you're going through, God's going through it with you. So you just got to sit back and say, God, we got a problem here. How are we going to get through this? How are we going to get through this together? Because I know that's your will. Amen? Number three, stop wishing away the shadowy valleys. 
but allowed Jesus to lead through the valleys. Stop wishing away the shadowy valleys. Stop wishing away the presence of enemies around the table. For reasons I can't explain now, they're going to be there. And that is part of the life is complicated, follow Jesus anyway. Encouragement I'm trying to give. But stop wishing away the shadow we've had. They're going to come, whether you like it or not. Instead, allow Jesus to lead you through them. And finally, focus on both the promises and the presence of God. God has not just promised to do things to help you. God has almost also promised to be with you even when you're in the midst of the storm. You know, in farming, ancient farming, there were two animals available to help farmers. There was the horse and the ox. Now, I can tell you this right now. If it were up to me, I'd rather have a horse all day long. They're cute. They eat apples. You can ride them. You can brush them. You can talk to them. I have a feeling that before we had cars, horses and dogs were equally loved by the family. You know, horses are just lovable, right? Ox, ox, don't we like, isn't that down in Mexico we have bullfights with oxes, right? We have no, <laughs> we have no sympathy for them, right? You know, they're, they're just big horned beasts that have, do nothing but pull things, right? But here's the interesting thing. When it came to farming, while most of us would choose a horse, the ox was better. And here's why. Ancient farmers learned this. Horses are cute, but they're not particularly smart. A horse will work itself into a heart attack and die. They will. An ox won't. An ox will work and work and work and then all of a sudden it will stop. And it stiffens his neck. This is where we get the phrase stiff-necked, right? You stiff-necked. This is where we get the phrase stiff-necked. An ox will stop and stiffen its neck. Say, so what do you do to get it to unstiffen? There's nothing you can do. It's an ox. And when it decides it's going to work again, that may be five minutes, it may be 15 minutes, it will work again. You may say, well, why is the ox that is stubborn superior to the horse that is cute? Because the ox knows when to stop, it works harder, it works longer, it works stronger, and is more faithful to get the job done in any given day. So what am I telling you? They aren't pretty. And they don't always smell good. But be an ox. Be an ox. And you'll make it to the end of the line. Amen? Amen.